0: Welcome to another episode of the Walkworthy Podcast. If you were joining us last week, I made the comment about how good it was to have the band back together, and this week we don't again. Uh, Sadly, Pastor Caleb is unwell, so if you are listening to this, uh, pray for his recovery. He has a retreat scheduled this weekend with uh, two other churches, with uh, ministering to high school students, and he is scheduled to... Uh, preach or teach on that weekend. So I do remember him over the course of this week if you're listening in time. Otherwise, it is a delight to have Pastor Sergey Lee, Pastor Kevin Dow, and Pastor Jamie Howard is on the microphone. So Jamie's been coming and spending time with us from GRCC and Elora, and he listens to our sermons and he joins us for our uh, pastoral meetings and our sermon debriefs. And we're very happy to have you on the mic today, brother. So welcome
1: yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: So last week, last Sunday, this last Sunday, the sermon text was exodus seventeen eight through sixteen, which is the account of the of Amalek attacking Israel on the way from Egypt to uh, the mountain that God had directed them. And we are going to have two sections to our conversation today. The first one is going to be the normal, personal reflections on sermon, any feedback, further application that you want to discuss related to the content. And then there are a number of remaining questions from life groups that were sent this past week. I think I had over 20, almost 20 questions come in this week from life groups. A lot of them uh, were unique and some of them crossed over. Most of them were dealt with in the sermon, uh, I believe, but some of them were not, and I just wanted to give some air time to that, as well as, if there's time, to questions that were asked uh, of me after the sermon uh, before people left the church building yesterday. So why don't we start with the regular sermon review, any personal reflections, ways that God's Word ministered to you as you sat under the sound of it yesterday? Don't all go at once.
2: I was struck, uh, particularly as you were contrasting uh, Moses's weakness being on display, and how God is demonstrating that He is the decisive factor in the battle with the the way the the tide of the battle would shift with whether or not Moses was had the staff raised or or had lowered his arms, and that struck me because. Uh, I I often think in terms and, and operate in terms of I am someone who's weak, but in, in, in moments uh, of forgetfulness, uh, I, I'm languishing in my weakness, wondering why I'm not able to accomplish certain things. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, to be to just be aware of my weakness in times when I just want to get something accomplished is difficult, sure. And, and that was a, just a good reminder because I I imagine that Israelites were dying when the tide was turning against them. And, you know, the impetus to keep that staff high had to just weigh on Moses heavily. And and he's weak. He's not able to do that on his own, which is a, just a vivid reminder of our own, my own weakness. And that was really helpful. And I just had one more. Um uh, and that is uh, the reason why we are not blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life is we are under the banner of the cross. That was just a helpful, vivid, uh, well well said phrase. That's
0: good. Thanks for sharing, Sergey, Jamie, Anthony. You want to add on your own front of the Lord speaking to you directly?
1: I just really appreciated how it. De- Right at the very beginning of your of your sermon, you mentioned Jesus and, and how it points to him, this whole story. So I just found that very helpful, f- helpful for myself, and I imagine it did for everyone listening, that it, it kept us focused then on Christ, and you're looking for him then throughout the rest of, mm. uh, of the narrative.
0: That's good. Thank you.
3: Um, I had a... I was using a sermon...
0: Evaluation form. Oh, and I didn't even know it. All right, here we go. Brace <laughs> myself. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh,
3: first three points were like, preacher clearly said the context of the passage. The sermon revealed the main point of the text. The preacher clearly preached Jesus from the text. And I put strongly agree on all three of them. Praise um, gone Like Jimmy said, it is, I think, a gift for preachers to... Not just expose the text the truth of the text but how do you connect to christ uh, for us today so that was encouraging to, to see that but i think you also equip us and help us to do it on our own good um on a weekly basis so um yeah that's what came out for me okay it's so, yeah. great thank you
0: uh anyways that you would uh anything that was particularly helpful in how the sermon was preached anything that was. Particularly unhelpful in how the sermon was preached, anyway, that you would offer some uh, improvement?
1: Not unhelpful, but um, well, I, I enjoyed how you mentioned sort of those three examples of attack, you know, uh, uh, but you you mentioned people that I would assume everyone was familiar with then in the church family and and so very relatable to them, and I thought that sets up them well, because when you brought it in later, just the fact that that flowed with the text, here's the attack but we know God wins and then those very real examples of people they would know God won in their story so I just think if I'm if I'm listening to that God won in their story the people that I know and love, God can win in my story too That's
2: good,
0: great I was very grateful to uh, Allison, Keith to Sarah for giving me permission to um, include their stories in the sermon. Uh, That just occurred to me actually Sunday morning. I reached out to them. They got back to me very quickly. Uh, No one ever has to worry about... I saw a mug once, a pastor mug, like a coffee mug. Be careful or you'll end up in my sermon. And uh, (laughs) so you never have to worry that your name is going to appear in a sermon without your express permission. So uh, thank you to uh, those folks who... Uh, allowed that to be the case, and I think that is helpful. You're right. Those people would, I hope, be known to the, the our congregation uh, unless you're a visitor or a guest, and so hopefully that is helpful to hear about God working in actual people's lives that you rub shoulders with on a regular basis.
2: I think even pointing out those examples as, as examples of this is warfare, right? The spiritual warfare is not just the devil appearing at the foot of your bed, like Luther reports, but it is anywhere where our faith is challenged, where we're challenged into unbelief or to forget God, That spiritual warfare. And usually it's happening in just the most ordinary moments of our lives when we least expect it.
0: It's subtle, right? It's uh, Very subtle. Uh, our enemy is clever, and uh, he seems to operate in this part of the world in a very materialistic way part of the world, very subtly, very kind of behind the scenes, although perhaps that's becoming more overt given how much we love violence and the occult in our um, entertainment. But I think that's another subtle way of deadening people to these realities as well. So you're right. It is everyday
2: life that we encounter these things. And uh, so I have noticed it just speaking of popular, popular culture. I've noticed over the last couple decades where even in uh, uh, young adult literature Vampires are often cast as heroes and desirable figures when the the, original vampire was looking at someone who was condemned against their will. um, Right? There was always a sense of relief. If you ever read Bram Stoker's Dracula, there's a sense of relief and peace, spiritual peace, on vampires that are slain because that evil persona that's been foisted upon them is removed yes yes and yeah but that that, we've it's been twisted it's been twisted to make evil appear good and good evil Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so yeah we have to be aware of these things and uh just use our discernment as we're engaging with the culture of the world around us but also to not be unaware of satan's schemes which paul tells us and to recognize the ways in which that might manifest in our own lives That's probably a good segue unless there's anything you guys want to add to at least go to one of the questions that was asked after the service yesterday um, on Sunday, which was we identified ways that we see our enemy attack us as followers of of Christ. How does he do that to those who are not followers of Christ? We assume that Satan's working against those who are, are not in christ like how does are are there spiritual attacks that are happening how is that uh so that was an interesting question i never considered it in that way it was phrased i appreciated the question my mind immediately went to second corinthians 4 where it's where paul speaks about the god of this world blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from the knowledge of, of christ to keep them from the gospel and so i would say that's one way that uh, our enemy is at work in the lives of non-Christians is to prevent them from becoming Christians. Uh, I don't know if there's any immediate thoughts that come to you guys on anything that you would add to that. I haven't had anything else come to mind since, but uh, I do think that's certainly a way our enemy operates in our world today. I think it's the
3: self-dependence, independence of uh, I'm good on my own and having that, being um, like th- that's the w- where the world is pushing us right now. Make it on your own. Follow your heart. Follow, um, follow what's inside of you. And when we read the Bible it's like, don't do that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but, that's the heart is deceitful above all things. And, yeah, uh, yeah, that's good. I also go back to questions from life groups. This will dig us into the text a little bit more. I have some answers to these questions. I'm curious as to uh, any thoughts that you brothers might have as well as we consider them. Uh, If you're a facilitator of a life group, thank you for sending these in. I don't always have opportunity to reply to every email that you send, but I read them. Uh, I read your questions. I'm grateful for them. I usually prepare most of the sermon before I look at questions so that it's not Steering me in a particular direction, or and then I come back to the questions, and I know, okay, this one's been answered, that one's been answered, that one's been answered, this one hasn't. I'll throw this one in. Uh, I'm not gonna have time for that one, so on and so forth.
2: But as you, if you're attending first principles of handling God's word at all, like you're like you're teaching us on Sunday night, we realize that we wouldn't want particular questions to influence our early preparation because we wanna we wanna be uh, again true to the line, true to the text. And, uh, but I'm just encouraged to see so many questions coming out of the life groups. It just mm-hmm. seems like there's, there's a lot of fruitfulness going on as people read sermon texts. Mm-hmm,
0: absolutely. So I'll, I'll rattle through these questions. We'll keep an eye on our time. Uh, the first question, and this was asked from a couple different uh, groups, the text seems out of place, especially immediately after the account of the people at Meribah. What role does this passage play in the overall story of Israel in the wilderness? Why such an abrupt transition with this passage from the previous ones about wandering in the desert?
2: I actually think you answered that question early on in your sermon when you mentioned that when does Amalek choose to attack Israel? When they're weak and they're weary. And not only are they weak and weary physically, but they're weak and weary spiritually because they're already grumbling. They're already predisposed to Disarray and susceptible to attack.
0: So, talking about the schemes of the enemy, he will pick his moment, right? To uh, and he's ruthless. And like he did he that will. with Jesus, Absolutely. right? When he
2: didn't, when it, when the temptations in the wilderness didn't work, he, the scripture says that he pulled back, he withdrew, and awaited a more opportune, opportune moment.
0: Time. So he is paying attention to when is the most effective time to lash out, uh, and so yeah, we need to be aware of that scheme. So. Uh, in terms of the, f- the sort of flow of the story and the narrative of where we're going, I mean, they're getting closer to the, the mountain. Uh, they are, uh, at least at this point, uh, there's a whole 40-year detour that's coming because of their rebellion. But at this point, they're getting close to the promised land, and it's going to be conflict. It is going to be holy war as they cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. They're going to have to put out the nation's um, that God spoke to Abraham about all the way back in Genesis 15. And so uh, the conflict is going to be a part of the process um, from here. And so uh, this is just an indication of that being the case uh, as they get near to the promised land. They're going to fight Amalek again uh, in the promised land. And so uh, it does connect, it does flow with where they're going, where they've been, and uh, to where they're going. So I don't see it as abruptly as others might uh, have initially considered it. Question number two, why did God make them fight? Why didn't he just wipe out the people for him? Why did the staff have to be continually held up by Moses? Why didn't it have a more immediate effect, like the water coming from the rock or the parting of the sea? This is a fabulous question, and I actually would like to kick it around a little bit with you guys because uh, I, I can't say definitively, why it is that the Lord would choose to work in one way in one occasion and why he chooses to work another way on another occasion, I think that's up to him. And uh, sometimes he gives us immediate victory. Sometimes we have to wait upon him for it. And he has his purposes for each of those outcomes. Um, And so and on this occasion, the people of Israel are called to engage in combat. They are called to fight. And so the Lord uses His people; He uses means to accomplish His ends, and uh, He does it in very particular ways according to His divine prerogative. I I don't know what else to say other than that.
2: Well, yeah. Why here and why elsewhere is divine prerogative, and and we don't really have an answer for that. But I think here what we see is we is Israel is given the the ability to participate. Right? They they become instruments in God's hands. Which is what's going to happen. Uh you know, when they when they when they speak of uh when they when they're like you just said, when they're gonna go into the promised land, it's going to be a conflict, it's gonna be warfare. And they can already see here, well, that we've already experienced warfare. We see that what happens when the Lord is with us, we see that we conquer when God is is fighting for us. Therefore we can go out and fight with confidence and we're called to that kind of a partnership with God today. and you know, we've been, as Paul says, that we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, but yet salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's a both and salvation does belong to the Lord and He and He decides to work through His people to disseminate His gospel and build His church and establish His Kingdom. And that's what's happening here. Why here and not somewhere else? That's above
0: our pay grade. That's I above
2: think. our pay grade. Um but I also think that that this is the kind of this is what God's going to be asking them to do in the Promised Land as well, mm-hmm. and it's going to be it's it's going to be a God including His people in the process, and so this gives them a preview. So it should not surprise them when they're spying out the Promised Land, right? Why would Joshua and and Caleb say, "Well, let's go up and fight"? The Lord is with us. Well, they saw it here.
0: Yes, and they were called to write it down. Memorialize it, commemorate it, and everyone but Joshua and Caleb seems to have forgotten uh, that this is exactly what happened uh, back in the at Rephidim on the way from Rephidim. So, and who
2: would know better than Joshua and Caleb? Because Joshua led this. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he was on the field. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. So sometimes the Lord works quickly. Sometimes the Lord works slow. Sometimes He works through extraordinary means. Sometimes He works through ordinary means.
3: Mm. I think this question came from our life group and remember the conversation it's like why did the the victory um why the outcome of the the fight was based on how high moses was because it's not the, the fact that he just held it up it's like if he brings down a little bit oh it's like seeing a race he's like oh, and he, you know when you when you play video games and you just tilt your joystick do you think it's gonna help a little bit more <laughs> that's how i feel like it was Is like but but why was it like dependent on Moses' ability to be able to hold? It?
0: I think it was uh, I think what was happening is that the visual, as soldiers are glancing up to see what's going on, like Moses is up there on the hill. Uh, I think that it's the the, the the staff of God was above everything. I think that's what's being communicated. So when it wasn't, the temptation might have been okay. Now, if we prevail here, it's our swords, it's our strength, it's our. But when Moses has this, when the staff is above, even Moses, the prophet, no, the it's the Lord who's carrying the day. It's His power that is causing us to prevail. And for a group of people who are going in to take by conquest the Promised Land that God has uh, sworn to give to them, I think it's really important for them to realize that it isn't going to be them it is going to be the Lord. So I don't necessarily think it's like an inch higher, an inch lower, and it's dependent on, I think it's that visual, that that display, that this is God's power that's being effective here, not the strength of the Israelites is being effective here. That's how I'm understanding the the, the nature of the text. So.
2: And I'm never going to get the image of the staff of Moses as the divine joystick out of my head now, ever. There you go. Thank you, sir. <laughs>
0: Were you going to say something, Jamie?
1: Well, I was just thinking as you were talking there, Sean. Does that lend itself to the previous question? And why did God let it go on like He did instead of immediately stopping it? It kind of the people did have to look, and they were looking then to you know the staff. Okay, God's power, and only by God's power, and they they were forced to do that during the battle.
0: Yeah, that's good, and that would have been a lesson only learned over. It sounds like it was the course of a day. Moses says, tomorrow, he held his hands up, to the sun went down. So it sounds like this this went on all day. And uh, yeah, that wouldn't have been as clear in an instant as it was over a portion of time. So good reflections. Third question, verses 9 and 12. If we were present, we'd be prone to want to jump into the battle versus supporting Moses. This is a, would you rather be with Joshua or would you rather be Aaron and her with Moses what can we learn from this on how to trust and walk in obedience in the midst of chaos? Another fascinating question. Does this come from your group? We're not that smart. I'm not sure which group <laughs> this came from. I think this came from uh, Adam and Carly's group, <laughs> the, the Galt Life group they call themselves. So wow, you, you we're Galt too. You have just been uh, elevated yeah. to a status of smart by Pastor Sergei. So.
3: I don't think they had a choice though. No. Joshua just chose them, and it's like just hopefully, hope you don't.
0: You get, you get hide. Joshua's coming was quiet. Cause. Sure. So it's a good comment. Joshua was commanded by Moses or instructed by Moses to choose men. And we don't have time for this right now. If anyone is extremely interested, I'll send you a 12-point excursus on a commentary that I read this past week.
2: on. Mm, would you?
0: Uh, sure. On what qualified as a holy war and what qualified men to fight. And if men weren't willing, as you see in other places in scriptures, they, they didn't have to go. Like if he didn't want to go fight, you were not chosen, and it was the only men he wanted to, and it doesn't seem like there was any shame necessarily mm-hmm. in doing that. So you wouldn't have had to hide. I think you could have said, "I don't want to, I'm not. I'm not the fighting man type. I'm not going to." It wasn't all the men. It was choose men, and so it was only men of a certain age. And like I said, there's a whole list of criteria that you can draw from the scriptures on this. Um, so if we were present, we'd want to do this, want to do that. I think what you're, where you're steering this conversation, Sergey, is we don't actually get to choose. We need to follow those who are leading us. So Joshua's following Moses' lead. The men are following Joshua's lead. Uh, perhaps Moses asked Aaron and her to accompany him up onto the mountain. We don't know, but the Lord appoints leaders among his people. He will direct his people how their gifts and contributions should be made for the purposes of his kingdom. And uh, that's probably a really important um, aspect of that for us to understand is that we serve where the needs are and according to our gifts when the time is right. And we do that in under the oversight of those that God appoints as leaders in our midst. So so what can we learn? Uh, yeah, we God appoints leaders. We should ordinarily follow them in as much as they're following the Lord.
2: And whether or not you're helping Moses hold the staff up or you're on the ground with a sword, you're vital to the battle. Um, you're, you're vital to God's plan because it, it says, right? It, we, we, we see this. Uh, it, it says in uh, verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. So his hands had to be, he grew weary, so they had to be propped up. Yet in verse 13, it says, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So both were integral yep. to winning the battle. That's right. Wherever you were put, that it mattered.
0: So it, it comes down to, I think, submission. Well, it matters, absolutely. And it comes down to submitting to the Lord on the opportunity, the gifting, uh, and we we're, we're dispatched by our sovereign Lord, and we submit to that, and we rejoice that we have any part to play in what he's accomplishing yeah. which is always a grace gift.
2: There's a fittedness. Yes. There and 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 maybe in the grand scheme of things we think that our you know maybe we think Joshua should have chosen me for this and rather than that and and there and and there are mistakes made at that horizontal level but at the vertical level God's God's plan is perfect and his sovereignty is is perfect and he's got something for us even if we feel like we're ill chosen or ill suited for what the task we're given, as Moses did originally, Mm -hmm. right? He didn't want this. No, he
0: resisted on many fronts. Yeah,
2: Yeah. his place in this battle is is part and parcel with the role that God has given him. And remember, back in Genesis, this is not a role he wanted. Mm
0: -hmm. That's right. That's good. Next question, verse uh, 12, are we meant to see by Moses being supported by the rock and the two other men an example for our need for Christ and the church to come around and support us? Interesting question, which is aiming at understanding Old Testament passages in light of Christ, and how do we draw these lines from what we read to the person of Jesus, uh, to the new covenant realities? I love the um, intention in the question. Uh, I didn't make that connection yesterday. I didn't connect the rock to Christ. I didn't connect Aaron and her to the, uh, the church, and I don't think I would have um, because I don't see any impetus in Scripture to make those connections, um, and so I want to follow a New Testament interpretive um, dynamic in looking at the Old Testament uh, there's been a very interesting history of interpretation in this passage, and some people have seen Moses with his arms outstretched as that's Christ on the cross, and the two on the other side are like the thieves on either side of the cross. And I think those are stretches; those are analogies that or, people or are drawing.
2: Actually, they're allegorizing. Yes, yes, the text for right sure. In...
0: Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't, I'm not inclined to interpret scripture that way, which is why I didn't make those connections. Um, it can be very easy to do that, but it's very subjective, and it actually can unroot uh, seeing Christ in all of Scripture uh, from the Scriptures itself, and it just becomes based on the interpretation of the person who's making the allegory in a particular time and place, which then dehistoricizes the uh, the the the. the reality of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. So I wouldn't see it that way, although I never want to discourage anyone from seeking to interpret Old Testament through the cross of Christ.
2: Sure. But I like your, your, uh, illusion. The problem is that, as you mentioned, is the subjectiveness of it, because we can look at this particular way. This is worded and say, boy, that, that sure seems to, that doesn't lead anybody astray, um, uh, to think of, um, this this idea of being supported by the Rock and our need for the Church, and boy, that seems to, that those things are true, so what's the harm in right. coming to that allegorical mm. conclusion? And yet, it's the subjective nature of it, and, and then the text the focus of the text, what the text is actually teaching, can get lost in that. We want to be very careful.
0: Absolutely. You want to stay on the line and not make... Stay on the line. Yes, you don't want to say more than Scripture says. You don't want to say less than Scripture says. That is our commitment.
2: Even if the more or less may turn out to be biblically accurate. Sure. But it's not necessarily in this
0: text. Exactly. That's right. And you're
2: not... uh, That's good.
0: I think for me, it just
3: points to verse 11, when when we might think, oh, Moses had that... The power to prevail—it just shows that the source of their victory was not in how strong Moses was, mm-hmm. mm. was right. So he, he became weak, but they still won, not because Mo- Moses was strong,
0: but because God was uh, mm-hmm. able to, to do it for them. Yeah, for sure. If anything, there's you could you could uh, you could preach Christ from this text by way of contrast, which I think is also going to be true in Exodus eighteen that we'll come to this Sunday, Lord willing, and that Moses Christ is not like Moses. And he, he's greater than Moses, and that's one way that you can uh, you can you can move to Christ from this text. Um, also in line with the whole theme of the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, conflict prevailing, those types of things. Those are that's those are the ways I chose from this text to move to Christ and to think about this in a new new covenant reality. Um, so I I I love it. I, I hope our life groups continue to ask questions about how we can go. Uh, we can preach the gospel from these texts. Like, but keep doing that.
2: I like this next question because I thought I've thought this question myself. Why make a memorial when there is also mention of wiping out the memory? It's like the only reason <laughs> I know of Amalek is because it's in scripture. Yep. Like how how has God wiped Amalek's uh, recollection from from the earth when it's here encapsulated in scripture? Sure.
0: Sure. Yeah, that's good. I, I you're wondering about the logic of it. Um, And this comes from a life group, but have some very uh, logical thinkers in it. And so I wasn't necessarily surprised to get that uh, from them. How I'm understanding what is going on here is that this memorial is being written in a book and is to be recited in the ears of Joshua, who will lead God's people in the conquest of the promised land. So that what happens here. Will be remembered of how God gave them victory for the future battles that they're going to experience. And what they are being, what they are told to write down is that God will blot out Amalek, in that you will encounter these people again. These people who try to stop the very nation that God has chosen to bring about a blessing to all nations. They try to stop you going where I wanted to, and I will. Fight with these people, and I will, I will like I will end them. They will be wiped out, and that is to be remembered, so that for every future battle God's people experience, they know that in the end He wins, and that He will blot out those who are not in the Book of Life because they are against His people and His. So, is that helping?
2: Yeah, it does help. Uh, it makes me think too of the Psalm that says, you know, um, um, that. Uh you know, its its place will remember it no more, right? You will look for them and you will not find them. Yes. Right? The The effects of the seed of the serpent will, will in in the end, there will be no effect of the That's seed right. of the serpent. It, it, it will be, re, it, there will be no, all that will remain are the purposes of God accomplished. The effects and the purposes and the desires of the seed of the serpent Will will just disappear. We yeah. won't be able to find traces of their impact. That's right. Anywhere. That's right. Anywhere. We, and we get that out of Revelation twelve mm-hmm. as as well, right? Yeah, this absolutely. Is like, why is why is the dragon so furious? Because his purposes keep getting thwarted.
0: Yes, absolutely. And he will be cast into the right, like the, the lake of fire, which is the second death, and you know, he'll be tormented forever and ever. And so. Uh, so yeah, wiped out. There's no, the gates of the city will never be shut. There'd be no night there. There's no darkness. There's no second fall that could happen. Like this is, uh, it's over. Um, but the memory of the victory will not be forgotten. And, uh, and so I think that's what's happening here is that the evildoers will be wiped out. The memory of the victory will not be. And that's what's being established in Genesis, uh, Exodus 17 for the future benefit of God's people, including ourselves, right? These are our fathers, uh, not ethnically speaking, but spiritually speaking in the sense that Paul would uh, refer to in uh, in the New Testament. So, so there were a lot of questions about Amalek. I, I, I don't think we need to, um, you know, I, there's like maybe one, two, three, four, five sort of cluster of questions uh, about uh, Amalek being eventually blotted out and Uh, The Lord fighting against the Amalekites forever. There's a Hebrew idiom that means a long time. um, And so that's what's going on there. But uh, so we'll leave it at that. Uh, There is one, uh, two more questions, uh, just briefly. Some uncertainty about a hand upon the throne. So this is verse 16, I believe, Mm -hmm. which I mentioned just briefly that there, it's a very difficult verse to translate. Uh, these are the types of things I'm not going to get into detail in on a during a sermon on a Sunday morning. Uh, the Hebrew word translated throne in our English versions is uh, not the normal way it would be spelled. Uh, there's two Hebrew letters that look really alike to each other. And uh, for example, in English, sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between a lowercase l and an uppercase i.
2: Especially if I'm writing
0: it. Especially if I'm writing it too. Now, in Hebrew, the same thing can happen. Uh, An N in in Hebrew looks like a K in Hebrew. And so that's what's going on here. So some people translate this, a hand upon the banner of the Lord. Is it banner? Is it throne? That's one of the questions. Is it a hand upon or is it a hand against? That's another interpretive question. And so some people would see this as Moses saying that as he raised the staff, it's like his hand was on the throne of Yahweh, uh, appealing to him to win the victory. And other people would say, no, um, this is the hand of Amalek against the throne of Yahweh, which is why Moses sets up a banner and why the Lord will war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's where I'm coming out. It's a very sort of thorny interpretive issue. Um, and uh, there's different places that people will land as far as conclusions go, um, but not something that we should be troubled about greatly. Um and uh, I don't believe in any way he calls into question the, the uh, trustworthiness of our English translations as we uh, work through the Bible. So I do believe that, yes, this is a reference to Amalek holding up his hand in rebellion uh, against Yahweh. And that's why there is a fight against him. So Last question we got. Do the Amal- Amalekites still exist today? I have no idea.
2: Certainly the seed of the serpent exists exactly. today. That's, right. Right? That's the, right. The the tradition in which Amalek follows is still with us.
0: Absolutely. Yep. For Though sure.
2: defeated, it's still active. Absolutely. It's still dangerous. Yeah, for sure. And we still need God to fight for us. Absolutely we do. That's right. Yeah.
0: That's good. On that note, I think I will end with simply reading these verses in light of everything that we heard. Uh, if there are Final comments as I'm pulling that up, feel free. Otherwise, we're glad that you have joined us. We will let God's word have the final say as we just think about uh, and, you know, any enemies, uh, any fights or enemies start, uh, God will finish. And in the meantime, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And may we do so until we see him appear on a white horse to finally bring all of the conflict to an end and usher in the kingdom of righteousness, peace, love, justice, joy, forever and ever.